Welcome to season two of Odo Mentor, the podcast that provides mentorship for your otolaryngology career. I'm your host, Christina Cabrera Muffley. All opinions expressed in this podcast are solely my own or my guests and do not express the views or opinions of my employer. If you enjoy this podcast, please rate it and leave a review. Also, spread the mentorship and tell all your friends. This is season two, episode three networking locally and nationally. I'm joined today by Dr. Stacy Ishman, who graduated from Rush Medical College in Chicago, then completed a residency in otolaryngology at the Medical College of Wisconsin. After a fellowship in pediatric otolaryngology at Johns Hopkins, she stayed there to complete advanced training in sleep medicine. Stacy also has an MPH from Johns Hopkins in epidemiology. She is a professor at the University of Cincinnati College of Medicine and works at Cincinnati Children's Hospital Medical Center and the University of Cincinnati. Stacy has been significantly involved in the American Academy of Otolaryngology Head and Neck Surgery, the Society of University Otolaryngologists, the Triological Society, the American Board of Otolaryngology Head and Neck Surgery, and is the current president of the International Surgical Sleep Society. Thanks for being on the show. Thanks for having me. Yeah. How did you decide originally to become an otolaryngologist? Well, actually, I was absolutely going to be an ER doctor. And I tried the rotation and realized I didn't enjoy doing as much of the primary care as happens in the ER. So I was a prosector over the summer with a guy named Kevin Brummond, who is an otolaryngologist currently at UC San Diego. And he knew from like infancy or something that he wanted to be an otolaryngologist. So <laughs> the two of us were doing this prosector section. And he couldn't stop talking about it. I'm like, what the heck is otolaryngology? So during the summer, there happened to be a cadaver course with Dr. Michael Friedman, who was doing some interesting stuff and said, hey, if you guys want to help us do some prosection or get things ready for the course, you guys can come. And so I went to the course. And they were doing this cadaver dissection and it seemed really cool. And so I started checking it out from there. And honestly, once I did the rotation, it seemed perfect because I already knew I wanted to be a surgeon at that point. And once I figured out I wanted to be a surgeon, it just seemed like, gosh, this was the perfect thing to do. Yeah. So that was, sounds like pretty early in your medical school career. It was the summer between my second and third year. Yeah. But I honestly hadn't heard about it until Kevin um, waxed eloquent about it for an entire summer. When you got to residency, did you know that you wanted to be an academician, even in residency? I wasn't even certain once I became an academician. I actually had no idea. So I started off saying, I looked at private practices and I looked at academic jobs and I did my fellowship at a very academic place. So Johns Hopkins obviously has a very academic underpinning. And I said, okay, I'm going to give it a try. And I said, I I think if I start in private practice, I'm probably not going to go back to academics. So I'm going to start in academics. And if it doesn't seem like it's a thing for me, I can always switch. Yeah, it makes sense. The reason I asked you to do this podcast episode, which is all about networking, is because I had an experience with you at the Academy meeting a few years ago. I was on a panel where you were the moderator. We were talking about up-to-date articles in otolaryngology, and we had briefly met before. I didn't really know you very well, and then we did a video to highlight the key points about the presentation together, and afterwards you said to me, hey, do you want to run this next year as the moderator? And I was pretty darn surprised because at that point I was still trying to find my way in my um, networking and national presence. And I was so grateful for the opportunity. And then I feel like after that, I just saw you all the time at all the meetings. And so what do you think 
allows you to form these relatively quick bonds with people and, and offer opportunities like this. So I'll say the first thing is that you had already done two fundamental things that put you in the group of people that I would, I would ask to do something like this. And the first thing was you were on the panel, you did a really good job. And then the second one was that you raised your hand to do the, the webcast that we did afterwards. And so you'd already shown me that you're motivated, you're interested, and I got to see during the panel that you did a great job. And that puts you ahead of a ton of people who honestly don't raise their hand. There's a lot of people sitting there saying that they want to do more, but then when somebody says, who's going to do this extra thing, this extra work, they don't necessarily volunteer. And so I'm always looking for people who are going to do the work and follow through. And if they're fun and nice and do a great job, it makes it even easier to say, hey, this is somebody that I want to help put forward. It doesn't totally answer the question, which was, how do I kind of quickly make connections? Some of it is gut. But some of it is just running into people who are also interested in making connections. And so one of the great things about being part of an organization like the Academy is it's already a huge group of people who raised their hand, who were willing to be on the panel and do the work. Because while it's good for your national reputation, it's work to do those panels. You had to screen papers. You had to decide what you wanted to talk about going forward. And you, uh, even in that group, raised your hand a second time to do the webinar. So I think those are the things that make it really easy to say, this is somebody I want to mentor and sponsor, even though that's not exactly our topic today. Yeah. And then, you know, even as a resident, I mean, you started to become involved in these organizations. You were the vice chair for the section for resident and fellows through the academy, and then you were a representative to the ENT PAC. Can you tell me about how you became interested in these roles, even in your early career? So I am an introvert, and I figured out fairly early that the way that I feel comfortable is if I have a context for connection. So things like involvement in an organization make it much easier for me to feel like I can stand in the room and strike up a conversation. So when I was in college, I was actually the vice president of a student senate, and I went to a college with 40,000 kids. But it was a great context to start and talk about a lot of other things and join other organizations. So I figured out early, number one, I really like being able to improve things and help get things going. So I'm, I'm one of those program building kind of people. So I enjoy that. I also really enjoy politics, which is not what everybody likes, but I have a degree in political science and I feel like I use it every day. And I liked the context. So I like doing the work. I like feeling like I can prove the organization, but I also really like being able to, to move forward. So those roles gave me an opportunity to meet people, to learn the organization, to have some impact and I actually went back to serve another term on the NTPAC once I was done with residency and fellowship because I had the context and the ability. And it really helped me move forward in the academy, understanding the structure and figuring out how to move forward. But I also networked and learned, you know, some of those important people who were leadership in those capacities. And quite honestly, a lot of the people I knew in the resident and fellow section are people who continue to be involved in the academy. So it's almost like growing up with a class of servant leaders. Yeah. And that's fun when you get to see the same people and you already know them. And yeah. Yeah. So what advice would you give to residents and fellows who are looking to become involved and may not really know how to approach that? I would say there's a couple of different things. I enjoy some of the political pieces of it, but not everybody does. And so I don't think you have to go exactly in the directions I went, but if you like things like political action committees or the general resident fellow section, those are great places to start. In fact, especially the resident fellow section, every resident is a member. All you have to do is show up. And quite honestly, 
there's not always a ton of people in the room. And again, there's not always a ton of people who are raising their hand and willing to do things. And there's plenty of things you can do first. Actually, my first role was as the representative to the AMA. So I went to the AMA meeting, I reported back, I raised my hand at the AMA meeting and became a committee chair for the next AMA meeting and reported that back. And then all of a sudden I had a role in a context. And so when the vice chair position came up, there was an opportunity to say, here's the work I've done. Here's what I'd like to do. I have some vision. And at the time we weren't even a section, the resident and fellow committee really was where we were at at the time, or we'd just become a section, I think. And so there weren't as many people involved as there are today, but there's plenty of opportunities for residents to also be on committees because there's one on almost every committee in the academy. And if very specifically, you want to be on the sleep disorders committee or the airway and swallowing committee, you can volunteer for those kinds of opportunities without having to be in a more political kind of role. I also tell people as a committee chair, and I just finished as the chair of the general otolaryngology and sleep education committee, I'm excited to find people who are willing to do the work and actually follow through on their commitments. So if there's a committee you're interested in, even if you're not the representative from the resident fellow section, show up, talk to the committee chair, ask if there's something you can do. I had plenty of work that could be done by anybody who was interested, even if somebody wasn't on the committee. Yeah, I would say I agree with that. As the chair of the diversity and inclusion committee, we've had so many people volunteer and just show up to that committee meeting, which is an open meeting. Some of those people have actually done more work than some of the members of the committee. Yeah. And when they apply, those are the names you're going to put on the committee because you know they've done the work. So you should go to the meeting, sign up, introduce yourself to the chair, and then volunteer to do something and then actually do it. Yeah. So what do you think has really helped your career as far as being involved in these organizations? How, How has that shaped your advancement? I will say, I'm not sure it always helped my career, to be totally honest, because it's a lot of work that you're spending on things that are not either about your core practice or maybe your core research, if you happen to be somebody who does research. Yeah. But they definitely helped in terms of me knowing people. So I, at the committee, the point at which I was a committee chair, and especially as the chair of the board of governors, and I was on the board of directors of the academy, met so many people that I really feel like I now have the capacity to navigate that world pretty easily. And it really helps me help other people. So if I had a question, if I have a concern, I know who's the 3P person that can help me with a coding question, or I know who's the right person to forward a conversation about with regards to the cheer network, if there's a community research project you want to do. So those things have helped in terms of sort of facilitating my career, but also honestly, uh, give me great ability to advocate for my junior faculty, for my residents, for my fellows. And just during the course, I think SUO is a perfect example of a place where there's a whole room full of people who are interested in education of residents, but many of them are program directors, many of them are chairs, and it, it helps you as you're sort of navigating through both the academic and kind of the realistic world of, of how to move things forward. Yeah. When you first started going to meetings, did you have a plan for how to network? Like how did you build that, those relationships or, you know, was it more organic? I actually probably did have a plan for how to network. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) Um, That's just the kind of person I am. And like I said, it because I learned it in college. So I can tell you in college, I was the undergraduate on the university's budget committee. And I had the president of the university write my letter for medical school, which of course still didn't get me into that school, but that's a separate issue. <laughs> um, so I, I will tell you that I think that it was the context piece. So I, my plan was to show up, do some work, 
and then feel like I have this ability to say something. You don't have to do that. That was just my own internal compass on when I felt comfortable because my idea of a nightmare is to walk into a cocktail party. Like my strategy is to talk to one person and if that goes okay or they introduce me to somebody else or somebody else comes up to me, great. But like I am not the best networker if I have no context or don't know anybody in the room. And so that's where I just start. As I say, talk to one person and then work your way from there. At the point at which you've done that for a couple of years, now you know five or six people in the room and then it's not hard because you pop in with each of them, they introduce you to other people, and then pretty soon you really have networked with a substantial portion of the room. Well, you, you mentioned you're an introvert, which I don't know that I would have guessed, to be honest with you, until you said that. But that sounds like advice that you would have for introverts is start with one person and then as you build that, it'll be easier. Yeah. Or bring somebody with you (laughs) Yeah, so that you have somebody to talk to when you're like, oh my gosh, this is totally overwhelming. So what do you think has been one of your favorite roles? I really enjoyed my time as the chair of the board of governors. And there's a couple of reasons. One, it was this huge group of kind of disparate folks all coming from state societies and specialty societies who we got to work together to try and just make things better for otolaryngology and highlight socioeconomic issues and look at the politics that we need to pay attention to so that we can make sure that things don't happen to us, that we help direct them. And so I thought the privilege of working on that role and the opportunity to mentor people into future roles was fantastic. It also puts you on the board of directors. And so I had an opportunity to advocate for things that I thought were really important and that includes, you know, some work that we did to make things more inclusive in terms of language for diversity and inclusion. I know you and I were in the room at the same time, at least once. And so I thought that was a huge privilege. That was probably sitting on the board and working with the board of governors were, were really probably the best, most fulfilling things that I've been able to do thus far. Great. Have there been any relationships that you tried to initiate, but didn't really work out? How did you manage that? Oh, Definitely. You know, not everybody's going to like you (laughs) or have time for you or understand the value in a relationship with you. And so some of that is just making the attempt. And then if it doesn't seem like there's any chemistry there or they're not interested or they just kind of turn and talk to somebody else, then you walk away gracefully. And then I try again a different day if I think it's a relationship that's important to try and foster. There is a senior otolaryngologist in pediatric otolaryngology who I think I talked to eight times. And like the ninth time that person still couldn't remember who I was. It was not (laughs) important to them. And I was pretty junior at the time and they were ahead of me by a number of years. But I can tell you today, whenever I go to the city in which they live, we get together and have a cup of coffee and totally uh, enjoy each other and have even been to the point where we've given each other some peer mentoring. And so I say, if it's somebody you think that's important that you want to know or who you think could help you with mentorship or something, keep trying. And the other thing is, you know, when you keep trying, people recognize that you're somebody who's, who's serious and has followed through and that makes it a relationship that's important for them too. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. So you have two kids. How do you balance this travel that's required? Like you said, this isn't always beneficial to your clinical life or even your family life when you stand up and volunteer to do these things. So how do you balance that with your home life? Well, 
first of all, I don't know if everybody's going to be aware, but we're we're having this conversation in the middle of the uh, coronavirus pandemic. So, right, <laughs> luckily, kind of ironic. No right? travel for the next couple months. <laughs> yeah, um, I would say that you know at times. Um, it was beneficial because it was really renewing to me. So sometimes going to the meeting or serving in the role that you're serving in refreshes you, gives you new research ideas, makes you excited about your specialty. And I think the variation of doing some of that kind of stuff at the same time with with a clinical practice and some outcomes research for me really kind of fed me. And so gave me sort of this positive energy when I came back. But the other piece is sometimes it takes you away. And so I've taken some time and wasn't as smart at the beginning to figure out that you put the important stuff on your calendar and you make sure you honor it. So I had the normal, I think it's the female guilt thing where if you have to cancel a meeting because your kid has a choir concert, I feel terrible. So just recently I had to do this and, you know, I've been a full professor for several years. I've spoken all over the place and I had a local meeting with dental folks to talk about sleep apnea. They built a meeting around me. They had it sponsored. They had a place. And I figured out two months ahead of time, oh gosh, this is my son's last choir concert in junior high. I can't make it. And they rescheduled the meeting without even asking a question. They're like, okay. And I felt, gosh, I had all this guilt around this. I should really get over some of it and realize it's okay to prioritize your family, but it's also okay for your family to recognize every once in a while. I, I didn't make it to the soccer game because I was helping figure out what the next pediatric otolaryngology exam should look at. And I think that's important too. I will also say I was incredibly excited at the thought of two months of being at home for the next two months, which <laughs> made me realize maybe I need to back off a little bit on some of the travel. And that's okay too, to realize that there's times you really want to run out there and do it and times you don't. I am at a stage now where my kids are 10 and 14. They both still really like me and I still really like them. Then I realize I'm not going to have forever for that they're going to want to play board games, which we try and do every night when, when we're together. And things like that. So I also tried to institute some pieces I thought brought us into some communal time. And so instead of like the computers turn off and after dinner, we play board games for 30 to 60 minutes. And it's a time where we actually just have to connect, whether it's figuring out that my younger son is cheating or that my older son (laughs) is, you know, needling everybody, but it's, it's actually really, really fun. And it was validating too when my son he filled out something for Mother's Day and it was like, what are the thing, one of the things you really like? And he said, playing board games. And I did it as a way to connect. And it's gratifying to know that sometimes it can be something like that or going for a walk or a bike ride or whatever it is. But I think trying to build quality time in the time that I'm with them has been more important than making sure that there's more actual time. Yeah, I, I completely agree with that. I try to do that with my boys too. And I echo, I'm kind of glad that I'm not going anywhere for a while. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> the travel gets wearing sometimes. <laughs> yeah. Social distancing is hard, but not going out of town for a couple of months doesn't sound bad. No, agreed. So if either of your kids came to you um, in 10, 20 years and said, mom, I want to be an otolaryngologist, what would you tell them? Well, first of all, one of them would be 34. So I'd be like, are you sure? Cause it's going to take a long time. <laughs> I will answer this for my second child because my first child describes my job as my mom leaves her children to take care of other people's children. So he's not a fan. Okay. (laughs) But my second child, who knows what he's going to be? He's 10 and the world's completely ahead of him. And I would tell them that unless it's the only thing they think they want to be as a physician, that they should really investigate other careers. I think medicine's incredibly gratifying. I wanted to be a doctor since I was four. And I 
have loved it. But I will also tell you at this point in my career, just seeing patients every day it by itself doesn't give me enough joy for that to be the solo part of my career. And so it kind of comes back to some of this networking and involvement stuff. But if I didn't have that, I wouldn't always feel the same rejuvenation and joy in what we do every day. And there's days that are fantastic and, you know, you help somebody and do things. And there's other days where you're pretty sure that all you're doing is failing in all your cases and you should work and to get things going. And most of what ENTs do luckily is gratifying and it's quality of life and patients are happy. My specialty is persistent sleep apnea. We do not have a, you know, we don't, it's not like ear tubes where 95% of the people come back and are ecstatic. About half of the patients I've substantially improved and about half I literally didn't fix anything and they had to go through a painful surgery or use CPAP or do something else. And so it takes some energy to come back and say, I want to do this better and I want to build the evidence base, but sometimes I'm just wrong. In fact, I joke with my residents, I have this huge body of work. My 169th paper was just published and I should go through and figure out how many of them are negative studies of my great idea where I was wrong. So I think that if I came back to do it, intellectual curiosity is fantastic, and there, but there's a million ways to feed it. So you have to want to serve and know that there's days that are going to be fun and days that just stink. Like residency is hard. Medical school can be hard. Practicing can be hard. And so even if you're not in the middle of a pandemic, the day to, there can be a day-to-day grind for us like there is for anybody else. So you have to love the service and you have to love the work. Yeah. Is there anything else you want to add? Just that, you know, networking, I actually joke around with my junior colleagues. I have a couple of them who are also sort of introverted like I am. And again, nobody thinks I am, so I realize that. (laughs) But I tell them you have to go to the social events. So people who are introverted skip those to give themselves recharging time. But that's where you meet people. That's how you get involved. So you actually have to go to the cocktail hour. You actually have to go to the mixer. And those are the places that you're going to meet people and build the relationships that make it possible for you to move into the spot on the committee. And then the spot is the committee chair and then be considered for other positions. So, so you got to show up, you got to volunteer, you got to follow through on what you say you want to do and you got to go get a cocktail. I love it. Okay. Thanks so much for being on the show. Okay. Thank you. Thanks for listening. If you enjoy this podcast, leave me a review or go to my show notes page to let me know your thoughts. There's a brief survey to help me improve the quality of this podcast. Until next time, wishing you success and joy.